We will be continuing on this morning in the book of 1 Timothy. And so if you would turn with me to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 18. 1 Timothy 1 and 18. If you didn't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, we've provided them in the pew backs uh, there uh, for you, and that is for your use. And then also, uh, if you need a good readable English uh, uh, version, you can go ahead and take that with you today as our gift to you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul writes to his uh, friend and his um, disciple Timothy. He says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by them you may be strongly engaged in battle, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander are among them, and I have delivered them to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Let me pray for our time in the Word together this morning. Heavenly Father, you have given us your Word. Lord, you have told us that it is profitable for us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and instructing us in righteousness. And Lord, I pray that that is what is accomplished here today. May you guide our hearts and our minds this morning to not be distracted by the things of this world, Lord, but, by, but may they be focused. May we be focused on you. And Lord, may that focus bring about transformation in our lives, that we might walk out of here more like Christ than when we came. Lord, that we might surrender all that we are and all that we think and do to you. And Lord, may we be forever changed. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been uh, working our way through First, Second Timothy and Titus over the last few weeks, as many as you know, but some don't. <clears throat> and so just as a quick review, uh, we talked about um, some things that undergird these three books, some things that tie these three books together, uh, th- those, th- those things being the gospel, the importance of the scripture, the necessity of qualified teacher, and then ultimately love being the goal, as we read in 1 Timothy 1.5. Love is the goal, should be the goal of our instruction. And all of these things point us to the idea that, uh, uh, that, that there's a certain way we ought to act in God's household, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and 15. That he has called us into his household. He's called us to his table, as we've sang about this morning. And we sit around that table with other members of the family of God. And there's a certain way we ought to act or behave. And the way that we act or behave, God says, uh, that is actually the pillar and foundation of truth. That is the church. And so we've been studying the church. We've been studying how we ought to act and behave. Because our character and our conduct is a reflection of the truth of God. Or I should say it can be. And so we ought to strive to make it that way. And so we've looked over the last couple of weeks, uh, we first looked at uh, the, the theological foundations of this, being God's greatness and God's goodness that Paul points to in these letters. And then ultimately the foundation of our faith, which is the scriptures and the truth found therein, as we've talked about. And then we get into particulars of, okay, if, if, if we rest in the idea of God's greatness and his goodness, and if our foundation is the scriptures, then how ought we to, to act? 
How ought we to behave when we're together and in our lives? And so we looked at corporate orders of worship. We've looked at individual orders of worship. And then ultimately we've looked at how false teaching can creep into the church. And so we've spent the last few weeks looking at false teaching. We've looked at the, what underlines false teaching. We've looked at the foundation of false teaching and how we all can be in danger of being wrong. We all can have seared consciences. We all can become conceited and we can become unhealthily obsessed with disputes and arguments over words that aren't really meaning and aren't really loving. And how we, our minds can be deprived and depraved of the truth. And that that uh, foundation, that foundation then leads to different doctrines being taught and preached. As Paul urges against Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and 3. He says uh, 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 that you might instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine. And so these certain people were teaching a different doctrine. They were missing the mark due to the distractions of the purposeless, the attractive, or the meaningless. Those things which brought no glory to God. Those things which were self-serving and had no particular real goal in mind. And so we looked at how these different, what these different doctrines were last week. I want to end sort of this little, uh, this little sub-series on false teaching and false... Um, what it does to the church by talking about the results of false teaching. So we have uh, the foundation of false teaching. We have what false teaching looks like when it comes out. And then ultimately, what does it produce? What happens when false teaching is allowed to fester in the church? So we read here in 1 Timothy 1 and 19 that some have rejected this, some have rejected the faith, some have rejected, some have not engaged strongly in battle and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. I want to talk to you this morning about a shipwrecked faith and how we can avoid that. You know, Paul knew a thing or two about shipwrecks. The the, uh, 27th chapter of the book of Acts reads of a two-week-long ordeal of a two-week-long storm that Paul was engaged in. As he was being transferred uh, to Rome, he was on a boat uh, under guard and under watch and was making his way across the Mediterranean Sea. We won't take time this morning to get into the particulars of it, but he knew the dangers of shipwrecks. He knew what it was like to be on a boat in the middle of the sea and be utterly powerless to do anything about it, to be on course for a destination and then have something come along and distract and deter and to move them off their path away from their final destination. So he knew a thing or two about shipwrecks. And so here in 1 Timothy, when he mentions the idea of shipwrecking their faith, I have no doubt in the back of Paul's mind, he, he thought about that ordeal. He thought about what it meant to those men that were on board that ship and how scared they were. Grown men who had devoted them li- their lives to sea work, scared, helpless, not sure which way to go or which way to turn as that ship eventually ran aground and deserted them on the island of Malta. So Paul knew a thing or two about shipwrecks and how frightening they can be and how they can bring men to their knees, as it were. He knew what it was like to set sail for a particular destination and then never actually reach that destination as a definition of what a shipwreck. And so I want us to look this morning at, at what, 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 what about the shipwreck? What about being shipwrecked? So let's first think about what causes 
a shipwreck. What causes a shipwreck? Well, one, one thing that can cause a shipwreck is adverse conditions. Harsh conditions can push a ship off of its course. High winds or uh, uh, swirling seas can often push a, a, a ship off of its course. That in conjunction with what we might call navigational errors. Navigational errors. As these two work in correspondence together, they can cause great disaster. When adverse conditions come upon a ship and they continue to attempt to navigate in a straight course, great disaster can come upon them. And Paul knew this, and Paul referenced this, I think, even in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 6, where he says, Some have deviated from these, turning aside to fruitless discussions. So they deviated from their course. So what causes a shipwreck? Let's say number one, what causes it is what we might call a navigation error or deviation from the plotted course. Then we can look at what does a shipwrecked faith look like? What does it look like when one shipwrecks their faith? So they've gotten off course due to adverse conditions and navigation errors. We looked at that last week, right? We looked at what it was to, to preach a, a different doctrine, to, to teach these different doctrines, to miss the mark and be distracted by these things. We looked at that last week, but this week I'm going to focus a little bit more on what the impact of that looks like for us as individuals and then us as a community of believers. Paul points to what a shipwrecked faith really looks like in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you would turn with me there, please. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Starting in verse 3, Paul says, If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness. So notice there, Paul is back to referencing what we talked about in the beginning of the letter, these idea of different doctrines. Paul talks about if these are taught, if anyone teaches these. Now, verse 4, he is conceited understanding nothing, but has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, envious suspicions, and constant disagreement among the people, among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. I want to point out first that a shipwrecked faith looks like discord and division. Discord and division. Notice here at the end of verse 4. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people. When we deviate from the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we deviate from teachings that promote godliness, not just promote happiness or feels or good feelings or good times, when we deviate from that, which Jesus passed on to his disciples and which his disciples passed on and passed on and passed on eventually to us. When we deviate from that, we cause division. We cause discord in the body of Christ as we see here. Envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement. Secondly, we continue on reading in verse 9. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation a trap, 
and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This verse gets quoted quite a bit, and it gets quoted quite a bit, uh, particularly out of context. And here I, wanna, I want us to look at how this plays into the idea of a shipwrecked faith, that the pursuit of many foolish and harmful desires, that this trap that the enemy sets for us, this pursuit of wealth, this pursuit of comfort, this pursuit of riches is actually a trap. And those who have a shipwrecked faith have actually succumbed to this temptation. They've succumbed to this trap. They want to be rich. They think that material gain is the end-all and be-all for all of humanity. They believe that they will truly be happy. They will truly find meaning and purpose in their life if they can only acquire more things or more money or be more secure in this life. And so they turn to what Paul calls here many foolish and harmful desires. Notice at the end of verse 10, he says, some have wandered away from the faith. Once again, a navigation error in the lives of so many. We hear the phrase often in our own world today, just follow your heart. Just do what you think is right. Just just be who you are and follow your passion. There's, There's a million and one memes on Facebook regarding that. We have to be so careful, church, so careful that we don't fall into that trap, that, 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 that we don't wander away from the faith. We don't wander away from what Jesus told us, that it's more blessed to give than to receive, that, 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 that those that are blessed in him. We ought to be generous people, generous with our time and generous with our money, not pursuing those things, but pursuing godliness. Back up into verse 6, Paul says this, But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. So Paul uh, preaches the mantra of contentment with what we have, with what God has given us, as a way to Uh, mitigate this idea of falling into temptation. So a a shipwrecked faith causes discord and division. It succumbs to the trap of believing that godliness is a way to material gain, plunges us into ruin and destruction. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And then finally, I want to point us to Titus chapter 1 and verse 11. A few pages over, Titus chapter 1 and verse 11. Start at verse 10 for some context. For there are also many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. And so this was a real problem that Paul faced in more than one of the churches that he planted. People coming in and profiting over being false teachers. And, and Paul says here that, that that type of thing, that type of shipwrecked faith that is 
falls into that trap and temptation and overthrows entire households. Now, these could be individual family units. They could more likely be extended family units or even house church units that had developed here on the island of Crete. The word here uh, of family is the idea of, uh, or household is oikos is the word. It can be used in a variety of ways like that. And so it could be uh, small families, but more than likely bigger families or even house churches. That they, they could be overthrown or overturned because of this false teaching that come in. This is the same imagery and the same terminology that we get when Jesus walks into the temple and he overturns the money changers. This idea of flipping things on the head. Once again, deviating from the original course that was set forth. Deviating from the path that Jesus had set when he was on earth. Flip back with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want to point us to why do some shipwreck their faith? Paul points to it here. We read it in verse 4. We'll read it here again. Why do some of these do this? Verse 4, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. I want us to just think this, this morning a little bit about the conceit that is at the heart of of this pursuit. Conceit, the idea of of getting for yourself and thinking only for yourself and thinking highly of yourself too much. Paul warns about these more in 2 Timothy. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul talks this idea about being conceit. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days for people will be Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than loving lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Paul says to avoid these people, please notice here. This sounds like the description of the most terrible um, uh, movie uh, apocalyptic scene that I can think of. The idea that these people are running down, these blasphemers, these ungrateful and unholy and unloving people. It makes me think of the most most, um, depraved situation you can think of. But Paul says that these people hold to the form of godliness. Think about that for a second. These people have managed to hold a form of godliness. This is not some backwoods or backwaters or bar scene or some some clearly godless situation. Paul's talking about people in the church. He's talking talking about those people who have come in and have managed to, they're so conceited, they're so self-absorbed, and they're so manipulative, they've managed to hold the form of godliness, but deny its power because of their conceit and their love for themselves. Paul says to avoid these people, to quiet them, to silence them, to not allow them to operate within the church. In the next chapter, chapter 4, he goes on to say, Chapter 4 and verse 3, he says in 2 Timothy 4, 3, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own 
desires. Notice that. According to their own desires. They will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, be serious about everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And so clearly we can see here that the idea of conceit introduced in 1 Timothy chapter 6 gets explained in 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's a multiplying of teachers, the, the loving of yourself, the multiplying of teachers, and the turning away from the truth is a clear uh, navigational error that's at the center or the heart of a shipwrecked faith. Turning away from hearing the truth. These people were given to. You know, I heard uh, someone talk once, uh, it was uh, some kind of a, a neurobiologist talking about uh, the function of the brain, and he said something really interesting that I wrote down, and I thought, you know, someday I'm going to use that, and uh, today's the day. Today's the day I get to use it. I'm so happy that I found it. But, but here's what he said. W- when studying the brain, they found out that the prefrontal cortex, so the part that's kind of out here in the brain that, that's so helpful in decision-making and consciousness, the idea of being able to understand and, and, and choose and decide and make a good choice or the right choice, the prefrontal cortex is literally inactive during times of prideful thinking. It reduces introspection and the fostering, and it fosters deception. Now, let me think about that again. Let's, let's think about that again. Literally, the brain shuts down when you begin to think pridefully and conceit. The wiring in our brain shuts down. You, you literally can't make a right decision because the Brain synapses aren't firing in the decision-making part of your brain. When you're being prideful, when you're being conceitful, when you're thinking only of yourself, when you want to heap on for yourself, and when you want to lift yourself up. So the nature of a shipwrecked faith, why do some do it? Well, some do it because they are so utterly conceited. They're so utterly concerned for themselves that they have no place in their life for God's glory and God's edification. They have no place in their life for the helping of others and for the doing for others. They're so concerned with themselves. And you and I ought to be on the lookout for those types of people. And then we ought to also, more importantly, look upon ourselves. And think about our own faith and think about our own posture. Are we being conceited? Uh, what, is, what is our posture? Are we being humble? Are we being receptive? Are we being teachable? Or are we being conceited? Are we puffing ourselves up? Are we exalting ourselves in, in what we think we know and, and have a mastery of? Lastly, regarding a shipwrecked faith, I just want to mention this morning that Paul points to the nature of shipwrecked faith. If you're in 2 Timothy, just turn uh, to chapter 2. Paul mentions here quickly the nature of a shipwrecked faith, we might say, or the nature of, of this conceit, the nature of this false teaching in the life of the church. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 17. Paul says this, And their word spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetius are among them. They have, notice, deviated from the truth. 
saying that the resurrection has already taken place. We looked at that false teaching last week. But they, they deviated from that which Jesus taught. They deviated from that, from what the apostles taught. They've come up with their own doctrine, this different doctrine, and they've placed it within the church, and it's caused division. It's based on their own conceit, and ultimately it spreads like gangrene, overturning the faith of some. This, this idea that this is a medical term, for the consuming process of a mortifying disease, as one commentary put it. One translation says it this way, that, they, that it's like an open sore that eats away the flesh. If you really want to have a, if, you really, if I really wanted to have an impact this morning, I would have just Googled gangrene and shown pictures of it up on the screen. I mean, that's what Paul wants us, that's, that's the churn in our stomach that Paul wants to elicit here. Paul wants you to think about the nastiness and the grotesqueness of the contagiousness of this false teaching. That it comes in like a, like a mortifying disease and it consumes and it eats away the flesh. It destroys. It, it brings no benefit to anyone that it touches. It doesn't glorify God in any way. In fact, just a few verses later in verse 23, Paul says this. Uh, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. And so literally there's a breeding that goes on. One quarrel begets another quarrel, begets another, begets another. And you begin to see the endlessness and the purposelessness and the meaninglessness behind all of this. Once we depart what God has told us. Once we depart that which is true in the Scriptures. The 14 ships of Destroyer Squadron 11 were steaming south from San Francisco Bay to San Diego Bay in September of 1923. The squadron was led by Commodore Edward H. Watson on the flagship destroyer USS Delphi. All were Clemson-class destroyers, and all of them were less than five years old. As Destroyer Squadron 11 began their exercise down the California coast, they made their way through rough swells and currents. While the squadron was traveling, their estimations of speed and bearing used for dead reckoning were being affected by the unusual turbulence in the waters. The, navigation, the navigators aboard the lead ship Delphi did not properly take into account the effects of the strong winds and large swells for their navigation. Because of this, the entire squadron was off course and ended up positioned near the treacherous coastline of Honda Port, of Honda Point, instead of the open and clear waters of the Santa Barbara Channel. Coupled with darkness and thick fog, the swells and currents caused an earth that, that were caused by an earthquake in Japan days earlier made accurate navigation nearly impossible for the Delphi. The geography of Honda Point, which is com uh, completely exposed to wind and waves, created an extremely dead deadly environment once the unusually strong swells and currents were added to the coastline. Once, these once the error in navigation occurred, the continued battering of the weather and the ocean conditions sealed the fate of the squadron. The USS Delphi was equipped with a radio navigation receiver, the latest in navigation technology, but her navigator and captain ignored its indicated bearings, believing them to be erroneous and untrustworthy. 
No effort was made to take uh, soundings of water depths due to the necessity of slowing the ships down to take the measurements. The ships were performing an exercise that simulated wartime conditions. Hence, the decision was made not to slow down and take the proper measurements. In this case, the dead reckoning navigation that was being used was wrong. And ultimately, the mistakes were fatal. The 14 Clemson-class destroyers of Squadron 11 were to follow the flagship USS Delphi in column formation from San Francisco Bay through the Santa Barbara Channel and finally onto San Diego. The flagship was responsible for navigation. Based solely on dead reckoning, Captain Watson ordered the fleet to turn east into the Santa Barbara Channel. The ships turned east to course 095, supposedly heading in to the channel. However, due to the critical navigational errors made on the trip, the Delphi was actually several miles northeast of where they thought they were, and the error caused the ships to run aground on Honda, on Honda Point. On the evening of 8 September 1923, seven destroyers traveling at 20 knots ran aground at Honda Point, a few miles from the northern side of the Santa Barbara Channel on the coast of Santa Barbara, California. The Honda Point disaster was the largest peacetime loss of U.S. naval ships. 23 sailors died in the disaster. Despite the heavy fog, Commodore Watson had ordered all the ships to travel in close formation. And turning too soon, the USS Delphi led all of them to go aground. Uh, the six that had followed in close order uh, uh, sank due to these errors. It's a story we can think about and we can visualize what its idea, this idea of, of a shipwrecked faith, the idea of having navigation errors even in, in ourselves. And so as we think about ourselves this morning, as we think about what we can do to prevent this from happening in our own life. I hope I've made the point strongly enough that we don't want a shipwrecked faith. We want clear sailing. We want to reach our destination. We don't want to get off track. And so you might ask this morning, how can we do that? How can we do that? Well, we can do that by correct navigation, the thing that the USS Delphi needed so desperately, to slow down and to make sure that the navigation, the course that we are on, is the correct course. And for that, I just want to point us to some things we've already said in this series and then a couple of new things this morning. Number one, as we've talked about in weeks prior, we find safety in who God is. So the greatness and goodness of God that's seen in both creation and in the gospel. We talked about the prayer sheet that's out on the table as a tool to use each and every day to focus on one aspect of who God is. And to find rest and find safety in who God is. So that when something challenges us, when some teaching comes along, we can know whether to accept it or reject it because we know who God is. And we know who God is secondarily because we've centered that, we've anchored that on the correct navigation put forth by the Scriptures. And so we don't just find out who God is by looking inside of ourselves or by looking to some guru on a mountain somewhere, but we look ultimately to the Scriptures. We talked about last week the legitimate use of the law, as Paul says in 1 Timothy. Receiving God's Word with thanksgiving and prayer, being nourished 
in our faith by good teaching and training ourselves in godliness, taking a seriousness to the idea of the Scriptures and training ourselves, a daily regimen in that. The same seriousness you'd take towards a PT test or a major accomplishment you needed to achieve. Maybe some of you don't take very PT tests very seriously anymore. I don't know. But maybe at some point you did. So training yourself in the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? So we looked last week at the idea of personal Bible study and using the HEAR method. And those sheets are available in the fellowship hall of how to study the Scriptures for ourselves. So finally this morning I want to focus on just for a few minutes the idea of holding to the, to the pattern of sound teaching that we left off with last week. 2 Timothy 1 and 13 says uh, Paul's instruction to Timothy is to hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. To follow closely the correct flagship. The flagship that cannot error, the one that cannot make a mistake. That is what we are to follow and that is a pattern of sound teaching. So I want to give us a few characteristics of sound teaching or sound teachers. The idea that Paul introduces here that that there are those that are qualified to teach the Scriptures. Yes, we are responsible for ourselves in understanding the Scriptures, but we're also responsible to each other regarding the 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 teaching and propagation of the truth. So Paul uh, lists this out, qualified teachers, holding to the pattern that teachers put forth. In the weeks to come, we're going to explore what the particulars are. I just want to give us an overview this morning of what some of these are that Paul mentions. Number one, in 1 Timothy, he mentions that qualified teachers are to be in alignment with what God has already done. Paul says the words, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies already made about you, Timothy. And said, those with a good conscience doing what seems right, reflecting on what God has already done and revealed. That is what is in keeping with what God has already done. So not new or novel doctrines, not things we've never seen or heard before, but things which have been established by a historical pattern and evidence. Number two, he says that we ought to follow teachers that are a good example. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we get into the qualifications of church leaders. We'll talk about that more in the weeks to come regarding their character. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, be a good example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So the life of a teacher ought to reflect the truth in which he speaks, not this idea of hypocrisy or the idea of deceit. Teachers ought to know the teachings of Jesus and the Bible. We already read it this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 6, of doctrine that does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. So teachers ought to know the, know the teachings of Jesus and know the Scriptures. Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3, we've read it many times, that Timothy knew from childhood the sacred Scriptures, that they were profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Paul makes mention many times of teachers that don't give up or don't give in. Many times he admonishes Timothy to keep the commandment without fail, to guard what has been entrusted, to hold on, to battle, to give your attention to Jesus Christ, to continue on in what you firmly believed. Also, teachers who are not ashamed, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.8. Teachers that suffer and that rely upon God's power, not upon their own might or their own wisdom or their own knowledge. Teachers that know Paul's teachings and pass it on. 2 Timothy 
uh, chapter 1 and verse 13. Let's quickly look here. Paul says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Timothy had received this pattern, this pattern of teaching, and this pattern of teaching that originated with Christ and went to the apostles and now was being passed on again. This lineage of teaching. And then finally, teachers that are able to follow Paul's charge to Timothy regarding their behavior within uh, the, 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 the church, to, to remind, to teach, to charge, to be diligent, to correctly teach, to pursue righteousness and faith and love. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, let's read these quickly. Teachers that follow Paul's admonishment to Timothy. Paul admonishes Timothy here, flee from your youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, Love and peace, along with those who call in the name of the Lord from a pure heart. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. These are all instructions of what a teacher is supposed to do. And the teachers that we follow ought to do as well. The Lord's slave must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and be patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. Why would we follow sound teachers? Why would we follow those who have sound teaching? Because we might be granted repentance and we might escape the devil's trap. We might get back on course. We might set sail again. We might reach our ultimate destination. I think that should be a that is a worthy goal for us today. As I do most weeks, I just want to quickly uh, mention a few resources or a few tools for us to engage in this seriously. Number one, and most importantly, is personal Bible study. So the example and pattern of sound doctrine must start with the Scriptures. Must start with the Bible. We gave. And, 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 and its interpretation and its understanding. We gave a, a, a quick, um, two weeks ago, we, or last week we talked about the HEAR method of study. So if you don't know how to study the Scriptures, if you want a guide to do that, if you want to do that with somebody, please let me know. Please let me know, and we will do that. Please make yourself available to those resources out there. But some other patterns that have come along our way that, that are really helpful for us Patterns that we follow here at Pillar Church of Woodland, just so we all kind of know. Number one is we talk a lot, we talk about, or we use the pattern of sound teaching that came to us from the Reformation. From the Reformation. So the Reformation gave us pro- five primary aspects to ground our faith in Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christos, and Sola De Gloria. Aren't you glad they came to us in Latin? So what those means are is Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and to God's glory alone. So these Reformation rails that we run on talk about what we ought to be focused on. How do we hold to the pattern of sound teaching? What are the primary components of the Scriptures? The Scriptures themselves, the faith that comes, the grace we've received, that Christ is at the center of everything, and that God receives the glory for everything. Very important. Another more rails to run on or a, a hijack term politically is the term evangelical. 
evangelical or often think of uh, conservative people who vote Republican. Uh, and that's not necessarily what that word means. Evangelicals are something that was birthed more so in the 20th century, early 20th century. But they focus on a particular view for the Bible, a high regard for the Bible, the centrality of the atoning work of Christ, the idea that you must be converted to be in the church. You're not born into the church. You're not baptized into the church. Your mother and your father can't make the decision for you to be in the church, but you yourself must be born again as Jesus commanded uh, in the book of John. And then lastly, activism. The belief that the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth. It needs to be expressed in both word and deed. And so this idea of being evangelical is important to us here, is central to a pattern of sound teaching. Lastly, I just want to mention uh, the Baptist faith and message. So I'm kind of going from the broadest more narrowly. So the Bible, the Reformation, evangelical. Now we can talk about being Baptists and what it means to be particularly Southern Baptists. A lot of people are not familiar with what that really means. Southern Baptist churches cooperate together in order to fund uh, efforts for activism or the spreading of the gospel, the Great Commission. And so as Baptists have got together, they've created a standardized uh, doctrinal statement that says what Southern Baptist churches believe. And many uh, very learned and faithful people have contributed to this the Baptist faith and message, it has stood the test of time in many ways, largely unchanged since its origination, except for the additions that have come in recent years. And so we use this as a guide to understand what sound teaching and doctrine really is. So these are short statements, short doctrinal statements that seek to summarize what is taught in scriptures. And so qualified faithful teachers at the local level, whether it be myself or Brian or whoever, should uh, reflect these patterns, the Bible, the Reformation, evangelicalism, and being Southern Baptist, in addition to their character qualifications. So it's important that we recognize that here today, that those, uh, anybody that teaches from this pulpit, anyone that leads this church, anyone who leads you, who you are buying into what they're saying, ought to have those rails to run on. And so I just ask us this morning to think about this. Do you have a navigational error in your life? Are you seeking your best life now? Are you seeking happiness and fulfillment in anything but God? Are you pursuing different doctrines? Or are you pursuing to know the correct doctrines? Are you off course? Or are you pursuing Christ? Are you headed for the rocky shores of the trap? Or are you headed for the open waters that is Christ? By not following faithful and qualified teachers, we expose ourselves to navigational errors that can run us afoul. God wants us to change our course here today. He wants us, uh, for his glory to be our ultimate goal, to set Christ as the center of everything that we do, that we might not fall into the error of our own vain and conceited pursuits. I pray that we can do that this morning. I pray that we can do that in the week ahead, that we can follow qualified teachers and that we can learn what that truly means for us. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word today. God, we are full with truth and knowledge. God, I pray that this week we slow down long enough to absorb it, that we slow down long enough to consider it. God, that we, that we slow down. God, and not be such a quick-paced tempo, that, Lord, that we make turns and we make moves without you.
but God, that we continue to sail the proper course. God, that we follow the proper navigation. Lord, ultimately, that you might be glorified in all that we do. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.